0: Here's the uh, reading of the word, Uh, Jeremiah 33 verse 1 to 13, you can read that on the screen. While Jeremiah was still confined in the courtyard of the guard, the word of the Lord came to him a second time. This is what the Lord says, he who made the earth, the Lord who formed it and established it, the Lord is his name. Call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things you do not know. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says about the houses in the city and the royal palaces of Judah that have been torn down to be used against the siege rams and the sword in a fight with the Babylonians. They will be filled with the dead bodies of the people. I will slay in my anger and wrath. I will hide my face from the city because of all its wickedness. Nevertheless, I will bring health and healing to it. I will heal my people and will let them enjoy abundant peace and security. I will bring Judah and Israel back from captivity, and will rebuild them as they were before. I will cleanse them from all the sin they have committed against me, and will forgive all the sins of rebellion against me. Then the city will bring me uh, renown joy, praise, and honor before all nations on earth that hear after all the good things I do for it. And they will be in awe, and will, be, will tremble at the abundant prosperity and peace I provide for it. This is what the Lord says. You say about this place, it is a desolate waste without people or animals. Yet in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are deserted, inhabited by neither people nor animals, there will be heard once, more than more the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of bride and bridegroom, and the voices of those who bring thank, thank offerings to the house of the Lord, saying, "Give thanks to the Lord Almighty, for the Lord is good, his loves endures forever, for I will restore the fortunes of the land as they were before, says the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says in this place, desolate and without people or animals." In all its towns, there will again be pastures for shepherds to rest their flocks. In the towns of the hill country, of the western foothills of the Negev, in the territory of the Benjamin, in the villages around Jerusalem, and in the towns of Judah, flocks will again pass under the hand of the one who counts them, says the Lord. Here's the reading of the word.
1: Thanks be to God. You may be seated this morning. Thank you, David. Would you pray with me as we dig into this text? Lord, thank you for your presence in this house. Thank you that when we gather in the name of the Lord, that you promise to be present. And Lord, as we have heard your word And as we look into it this morning, I pray that you would move in our hearts and minds. Do what only you can do. For I am a saint and sinner in process. I can't change anyone, but I know that your spirit, through worship and word and prayer and communion, can pour out your grace and bring about new life in each person here. So do that work, I pray. And if you agree, would you say amen? Amen, amen. As we are about to finish up with Jeremiah, and we're going to launch into a series on the basics of Christianity because I think it's sometimes it's good to go back and, and sort of look at our foundation and build on that and strengthen that. I was challenged to come one more time to Jeremiah. William Carey was a Baptist, and he said this, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. I sent out sort of the summary of this message earlier this week, and to sort of think about what's going on here, there's something going on with the prophetic word to adjust to people's expectations, and we'll talk a little bit about the context. But I want you to get this sort of summary Adjusting your expectations is an important and emotionally smart skill to develop, how to adjust your expectations. And we can talk about sometimes when we try to prepare other people for their expectations being out of line with how we relate to one another, and we may say to them, you need to lower your expectations. Sometimes we have a sense that we need to learn to manage our own expectations about others, about our own lives, about our skills, about job, about family, about marriage, about church, about our, our fellow citizens around us. Our expectations, I like how uh, John Golden Jay said this, he says, our expectations direct our attempting as well. Our attempting is sort of increased or decreased by what we're expecting in a situation. And when it comes to God's word, the actions that move us into God's future. And so we often speak of lowering or managing our expectations. In church renewal and revitalization, we're managing our expectations all the time. Three steps forward, two steps backwards, four great months, middle of summer, lots of vacations, then the fall again. We talk about managing our expectations in the life of a church as well. But I want you to understand that what we expect and what we're leaning into motivates what we'll actually attempt to do with our lives. This one last text we're going to visit in Jeremiah is about a different direction for expectation management. It's informed by the idea of a God who speaks by his Spirit through other people to get his work done on earth. God's Word in real time and ancient time changes and empowers us, changes our expectations, and in that process empowers us to act differently and to move forward with a different set of expectations. And psychology today says this about expectations. It's all about managing this aspirational gap, one writer puts it. That's the gap between what is real to us and what could be what you have and what you expect it's all about expectation now if it's just about happiness all we should do is lower our expectations in life the less you expect the more happy you can be in the moment so if it's just about happiness psychologists say part of it lowering your expectations actually will make you happier Expect less and you'll be happier. Expect less out of everyone and you'll be happier because you'll never be disappointed, right? And in some sense, we do have to do that in life, in seasons. We do lower expectations in order to enter into the joy of the moment. But on the other hand, if you want to experience more, if you want to move beyond where life is now, there is something about raising our expectations, which we do risk disappointment But on the other hand, it brings motivation to bring about change. In this case, Christians add one other element to this expectation management, and it is the word of the Lord and the action of God through the historic community we see in ancient Israel and Judah and all the way through to the New Testament and the 2,000 years between that we add this dynamic of belief that there is a God who cares about creation, who created and is engaged and enters into it in Jesus Christ. And therefore, when we talk about expectations for our lives and for the future, we have to also include this major player, the Creator, in how we think about expectations. Yes, we should set goals and make sure they're achievable and try not to stress over what we cannot control, for sure. But we also need to understand that new life comes through God's gracious action. And if we're going to lean into our expectations differently with God, as if God were a real actor in the world, then we have to change how we think about our own lives and the church and the world around us. We have to sense that grace changes everything, that Jesus entering in causes us to think differently about what lies before us. And so this text today... Talks about managing expectations. Are you guys still with me? Are you awake? Are you just summer like, just very? I don't know if you're raptly attentive or if you're just kind of okay. You gotta give me more volume because these guys will go asleep on me. So crank it up. Give me the volume David had, or even or Andres or, uh, had. <laughs> so let's look at the background of this text this morning. In the last chapter. Chapter 33 of what is called the book of consolation that David just read. Chapters 30 through 33 are this pivotal point in the middle of the book of Jeremiah. And remember that Jeremiah is given a prophetic ministry during a time when Jerusalem and what was left of the ancient Jewish kingdom of Judah was in decline that the rulers had served themselves, that there had been injustice, they had worshipped false gods and ran after the gods of other nations. They had lost their way and direction, and God was using the empires around them, the prophetic interpretation, the empires were used by God to sort of try to bring Judah and Jerusalem back in the line into right worship. And most of Jeremiah is God's anger and lament at people being unfaithful in their relationship with him. And much of Jeremiah is a very dark book. But smack in the middle, from the editors taking Jeremiah's writings, in the middle of the book is this pivot that's called the Book of Hope or the Book of Consolation. And it tells us that God's judgment is not the end of the story. It tells us that the powers of the nations do not have the final say. It tells us that death and unrepentance and sin and our stubbornness do not have the final say with God because God is about to do a new thing. Now that new thing doesn't come to fruition right away for them. They will be in exile for 70 years and some of the promise starts to happen. And as Christians, we read that as beginning fully uh, the inauguration of the kingdom in Jesus' first coming and the fullness in His second coming. There's this community, though, that this this text comes to. What, What we're reading here is coming to them right before Jerusalem is about to be completely taken over and destroyed. This text comes, the book of consolation, right before the worst of the worst is going to happen. So we need to remember that, what Jeremiah is saying. If you could think about the worst of the worst in your life or in a nation or in a people, this is when this writing is taking place. The word of the Lord of encouragement comes right before the heaviest stroke is about to fall. That's a very interesting timing when the word comes. Four major breaks are going to happen as you read in your outline this morning. Four major breaks will happen in the future as well that God uses to bring about a new thing. The old temple and the temple system. Remember, as we talked earlier in the Jeremiah series, they had become too dependent upon the facility, the physicality of the structure, believing that as long as the temple stood, everything would be fine. It's like churches in renewal saying, if we just get a few more young couples, everything will be fine. If we get a few more bucks in the plate, everything will be fine. And God says, nonsense, it's about your heart, it's about being on mission with me. Like he said ancient Israel, the mission that he had for them to be a blessing and a sign and a kingdom of priests for the nations, not just for themselves and their inward clannishness. The major break that will happen in the book of Consolation is how... King's rule will change. There will be a ruler from David's family lineage, but it will be unlike any other king that came before. He will be just. He will be true. He will be faithful. That there's a new unified community that's going to develop. Not a splintered community as Israel had become splintered. That's what happens when people start infighting and forget the main thing. Yahweh or in our case Jesus is the main thing. They splintered. They broke up. The kingdom divided. Two tribes went that way. Ten tribes went the other way. Israel, Judah, the ancient kingdom split in two. And splintered and splintered and splintered. Behold how good and how lovely it is when brethren dwell together in unity. There God commands the blessing. But they stopped Seeking the unity around Yahweh, around, we would say as New Testament believers, around Jesus. But God is going to do a new thing. And then finally, we see right before we get to chapter 33 and chapter 31 and chapter 32, God says, I'm going to change how I do covenant with you. I'm going to take the covenants that we have had before the Creational Covenant, the Abrahamic Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant or Sinai, the Sinatic Sinai, Mount Sinai Covenant was given and the Davidic Covenant with the kings. I am going to do something new. I'm going to take the law from that earlier covenant and I'm going to write it on your heart by the power of my spirit, my gracious spirit working in you. He said that in chapter 31, the new covenant and an everlasting covenant that catches up all that has gone before. So this text is delivered to a community that's at the breaking point. And Jeremiah delivers this message, a word from the Lord. So let's look quickly through the verses this morning. If you're following along, we're going to look at verses 1 through 5, and then we'll split it up after that, 6 through 13. And then the final two sections, 14 through 16, and 17 through the end of the chapter. So we're going to look just quickly through this verse, through these verses. Chapter, verses 1 through th- through 5 This word comes again to Jeremiah. He says the second time while he was confined in the court of the guard. Interestingly about the book of hope, Jeremiah's most hopeful prophecy, hearing from the word of the Lord, happens when Jeremiah himself is literally imprisoned because the king doesn't want him running around prophesying doom and gloom anymore. And so instead of hearing the word of the Lord, the king locks him into prison. But even there, Jeremiah hears from God. I think it's strategic And it's something to point out here is that while Jeremiah was in prison, this most hopeful word comes. It's an interesting thing. I I think of this and it's when our external freedoms are most restricted, we find out a lot about God. It's when we're not so distracted anymore, when we don't have to go to the market, when we don't have to have our phone on, when we're not on our machines, when we're not in our other things. It's when we are in these, sometimes these states of isolation and imprisonment that we can most clearly calm ourselves down to actually hear the word of God. It's interesting that the church in Canada and North America struggles while the church in the world where it's hardest, whether through government persecution or economic issues, is more vibrant because there's a sense of persecution sharpens our desire that there must be more and there must be something else at work in the world. Oh, I could preach a lot about the power of persecution as a sign of the kingdom and how we understand who God is more. It's in this emotional place where we enter in the line between sort of established and everything is fine to the unknown. it's on that line of crossing over where we are most open to the Lord. There's a word for that, this liminality, this place where we're on the line or we're in a border zone where we're crossing over. I think about when I cross over into the States or back into Canada. There's always this last exit before uh, you cross the border, your last chance. And you get into that border zone, you're stuck there. It's dependent on whatever the border people are crossing, whatever's going on with them. Your life is put on pause. It's a great time to pray and meditate on this idea of living into God and what is God doing in the world. We let our guard down often in times of extreme joy and in times of pain. I think Jeremiah is positioned in a place to truly hear. He's put into forced solitude. Charles Coulson, who was an evangelical leader, uh, was also a criminal from the Nixon White House, and in prison is where he was most open to the work of the Lord. Most open, and he has a conversion experience and becomes a leader in the church after this experience. What will it take for you to choose the wisdom of solitude and fasting, And listening by limiting the distractions in your life. What will it take for you to do that? God speaks in solitude. In your sermon notes today, there is a message from a pastor named Charles Swindell that I hope you listen to. It's broken into two parts, about 19 minutes each. And he talks about the power of solitude. It's an old message, but it's online and it's a great message. I was thinking also that the story of Sheldon Yellen... A guy that manages a $1.5 billion company, operates in 31 countries, employs 7,000 people. And he does this all without a smartphone. Yeah, you heard me, without a smartphone. And everyone gasps in horror. <laughs> He's the CEO of a company called Belfour, a privately held properly restoration company. And he only uses a flip phone. It's like my father-in-law, but for different reasons. <laughs> he only uses a flip phone. He said this, you can't show and feel emotion, compassion, passion, or intent through a smartphone through text. You can try superficially, but in terms of deep relationship. He said, a flip phone encourages phone conversations, which he strongly prefers to texting. If someone has something to say to me, they know they can pick up the phone and I'll answer their question. He said, I'm approachable and I can't convey that through a text. He goes on and tells a story. There was a young kid, I imagine meaning uh, somebody in their 20s, was trying to get at a meeting with me and sell a product. And he said, finally, after three months, he got his appointment with me, managing a $1.5 billion U.S. company, uh, U.S. dollars. And he's sitting across from me, and three times, Bellier says, or Yellen says, uh, three times, he answers, his, looks down at his smartphone and starts texting. Yellen told the young man, I'm not trying to be rude or arrogant, but I think you're going to have to go. I'm not asking you to get down and bow, but you just spent so much of my time texting someone when you're sitting with me. You got to go now, and one day you're going to thank me. In our society today, we are driven to distraction. I think, and I love technology, don't get me wrong, I'm not a Luddite. I'm a bit of a cranky Anabaptist, but I'm definitely not a Luddite. Creating space to hear from the Lord, like Jeremiah in prison, may be the most important spiritual discipline that we can we can learn. The place for solitude, perhaps the most important thing. For some of you, that was worth all the money you put in the plate today. And if you didn't, it's time to make a deposit. No, I was kidding. Uh, make space for him. Pause throughout your day. The ancient church had a daily practice of three to five times of pausing and naming the Lord and reading a psalm or being silent and listening. It will change your experience of God. It will deal with the anxiousness and the anxiety that we're driven by. It will deal with some of those things of sense of identity because you will again and again know I am a child of the king and I spend time in the king's presence and the king welcomes me. He's always ready to receive us, but we are the ones that need to create that space. For some of you, this is the most important life-giving thing you could hear this morning. Oh, there's more, but let's move on this morning. As you see in the text, it says, The earth, the Lord who formed it, so it's going back to this Genesis Sort of claim that who is talking here is the one who is the creator of all. He said, verse 3 call to me, and I will answer you, and I will tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. This is good stuff. In the midst of imprisonment, in the midst of the exile that's about to happen, the crushing of Jerusalem, God gives this message to Jeremiah in order that it is relayed to the rest of those who will choose to be faithful. And he says this, when the word of the Lord comes to him, he says, call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. Which is really fascinating. So the Lord speaks to Jeremiah to tell him, you need to start speaking to me. <laughs> Think about that. He says, Jeremiah... You and the people, I desire living relationship with you. I desire that you speak to me, that you call to me, that you call on my name. I'm going to interrupt you and tell you, call me. Think about that. That is a God. Excuse me. That is a God. who wants to hear from you. That is a God who says, you value, your voice matters to me. Call to me and I will reveal to you things that no one else, nothing else in creation, nothing else in natural revelation, nothing else in political revelation or in the pursuit of truth, I will reveal to you things that you cannot find out other than in solitude and listening to my voice. This is amazing stuff. It's good stuff. Preach it, pastor. This is good. Call to me. He will reveal these things. Look quickly at the next few verses. For thus says the Lord, the houses in the city. So he's saying that the houses, they have been tearing down the houses of the royalty and the politicians and all the upper level uh, rulers. And they've been tearing them down to build up more fortifications as if tearing down the houses were going to prevent the greatest empire at the time from coming in and destroying the city. But they destroyed them. And he said this, that these things that you're using to make a defense... And they're going to be filled with corpses. There's a not so happy part of this prophecy because I've hidden my face from this city because of its all its wickedness. So verses 4 and 5 drive home again that they are being judged because of their injustice, because of their wickedness, because of their ignoring, because they have reached a point where God removes his protective hedge and he lets them reap the whirlwind of the adversaries around them. An Anabaptist reading of this passage would say that God is not the one doing the slaying per se, but what God is doing is taking down his protective wall as it says, I've hidden my face, which is sort of this verse that you hear this phrase elsewhere in the Old Testament that means God has basically taken away his protective hedge because they have no longer been in relationship with him and he just lets sin take its course and there's destruction. And much of Jeremiah's is that. But then in verse 6, There's this turn, and I'm going to have to land this a little sooner, but that's okay. We'll get there. In verse 6, there is the turn, and this is the last chapter in the book of Consolation. He says, but behold, or nevertheless, I will bring to this city now health and healing, and I will heal them, and I will reveal to them an abundance of peace and truth. You see, in Jeremiah, the book of Consolation, God is shifting his covenantal Relationship with Israel. Before it was that if you do this, then I will bless you. If you do that, then I will bless you. The the, the sort of give and take of the old covenant. And then all of a sudden, the prophets, the agreement starts to change. God uh, uses this, and and the people cannot sustain it. And God says, You know what? Uh, You are going to reap the whirlwind for your sins. I won't remove the consequences, but what I'm going to do is my grace which, of course, foreshadows what he does in Jesus, fully putting on flesh and dwelling among us. But he foreshadows, he said, you know what? You can't do it in your own strength, so you know what? I'm going to write it on your heart. And not only that, after you reap the whirlwind of your own sinful stupidity, I will unilaterally uphold my end of the covenant and your end of the covenant, and I will do a new thing in you. That's some powerful stuff. You see, now we live in this time of grace where His grace goes before and empowers you to say yes and to live according to His kingdom and His desire. And so you still have a role to play, but His grace is empowering you ahead of time. He goes before. It's powerful stuff. And he says, I will restore the fortunes, I will cleanse them, verse 8, I will make them holy, they have sinned against me, I will pardon all their iniquities, all the bad things, all the brokenness, all the destruction, all of the evil which they have sinned against me and transgressed against me. And he said, then I will turn their fortunes of Jerusalem and Judea and they will once again celebrate the celebrations of natural human life, of weddings will be restored, and the celebrations of good worship. And then here, the, the litany throughout the Old Testament has brought up again, the voice of the joy and gladness, verse 11, and the voice of the bride and the voice of the worshipers. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. For His has said, His loving kindness is everlasting. I will restore their fortunes. There's a lot more going on in this passage we don't have time to unpack all of it, but he says, I will do this. I will return them from exile. I will rebuild the city, and I will bring reconciliation. He will restore, and Jerusalem will always have a place, he says. So the last part of this chapter, quickly. Are you still with me? I better take some coffee here, because getting worked up. What's going to happen? In ancient Israel, this idea of the Davidic kingdom and the priests or the Levites, these are two centers of power in ancient Israel, and the prophets sort of float around because the prophets kind of go with the spirit. But the more ordered means are the kingdom, the Davidic line, and the priesthood. And it says here that he's going to restore them. And indeed, we know that in 70 years, the Levitical priesthood will be ministering again, but the Davidic throne is never restored as far as we know from the Jewish perspective. From the Christian perspective, Jesus enters in as one who is both the Davidic ruler of excellence and the priest of all time. That God begins to set the stage and how, that's why in the New Testament we see so much of the fighting in the early between what was the old guard and what God is doing in Jesus because how it was expected to be fulfilled, their expectations and how it actually was fulfilled was different. And God begins managing their expectations through the prophets and many of the early Jewish followers of Jesus get it and the light bulb goes on, particularly at the ascension of Christ, which we celebrate this week, and in Pentecost. God will work through this righteous branch that he will raise up. Verses 14 through 16 quickly, let's just get a few few things there before we land it. The problem was that the kings and the rulers and the religious rulers were no longer doing what they were supposed to do. Kings are to give peace and security and justice and responsible leadership. They stopped doing that. Let this be a warning to any of you that have political aspirations, that God cares if you go into politics. Are you about peace True security, justice, and responsible leadership. If you're not, there will be a reckoning. (laughs) I think of the the proper roles of government. And here he also says the role of priests were to offer right worship and instruct people in the Lord's ways. In the New Testament, it says you should be careful if you want to be a pastor because you're going to be judged more harshly based on your claiming to share God's word. It's also why I'm careful that I pray before every sermon. I'm a saint and sinner in process. Yes, I've been ordained by the church, set apart for this role. And at the same time, your eyes are not ultimately ever on me. They should be on Jesus. And if I'm pointing you to Jesus, I'm doing the right thing. If I'm pointing you to anybody else, pointing you to the NAB, pointing you to our constitutions, pointing you to our beautiful pews, pointing you to myself, pointing you to Andreas, pointing you to our elders, I miss it. But if I constantly point you to Jesus and say, He is the center, He is the purpose, I'm doing my job well. (laughs) Oh, there's a whole other sermon there. I should stop. And so this righteous branch, kings and good governance, and he's saying ultimately God will bring that in his kingdom and in his way. God is working through people and he always desires to be in relationship. We got to land it. Look at the last 17 through 26. It's a restatement of promises. Verse 17, For David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. The Levitical priest shall never lack a man before me to offer burnt offerings. And he's saying that my covenant with you is unbreakable as creation, as day and night, it is unbreakable. My covenant will not be broken. And so how will God honor this commitment is the question. And Christians debate about this. Does this mean that there will be a literal restoration of Levitical ministry one day in Jerusalem? Some believe that may be the case. I don't know. I'll wait and see. Uh, others would say that all of it is fulfilled in Jesus and in what becomes the church and that Judaism uh, Christians are grafted in and those that are faithful follow after Christ. I'm not going to solve that debate, but I lean more in the direction of that in Jesus' first coming, it is partially fulfilled. In Jesus' second coming, it will be fully fulfilled and we may see also restoration. I don't know There's a lot of debate on how that relates to the covenants. But what I want to take away from this passage is that God will be faithful to accomplish this fullness of always having a people and always having a witness and by his own initiative will sustain that, which gives me great hope. So let me end this. What do I want you to walk away with this morning? Well, number one, there is no joy without mourning. There is no homecoming without exile. There is no salvation without understanding what we are being saved from, the judgment of the consequences of our own sinfulness and brokenness. And that there are no joyful celebrations in this case without the scars of survival. As one person put it, the future always comes through brutal honesty about our past. And Jeremiah is helping them through the word of the Lord to be honest about their past and then to receive the good grace of God. Judah can never return to its life before exile because God is doing a new thing. And I take great delight that God is doing it through prose and poetry and prophetic words. So take this again. In the situation of imprisonment, while his nation is about to be destroyed, Jeremiah hears the most hopeful words from the Lord. What will you take? What will it take for you to choose to begin to work solitude and fasting and listening into your life in order to restrict the other distractions to hear from God? If you're asking, Lord, speak to me, but you're never taking time, He's speaking. It's us creating the space to tend to His presence. If we want more people to know Jesus in our church, we have to take time to tend to God's presence in the neighborhood and with our neighbors and coworkers. So what will you do with that? Second takeout this morning is the darkest times do not have the final word, nor do they own the future. They do not own the future. The darkest times do not have the final word. In the midst of the darkness, the Lord speaks and shines through. There's powers in the world that want to claim total loyalty, but they do not have the final say. And the other takeouts you can see in the outline there is God using this time of post-Christendom to get his church ready for its next advance. Is God using this time to draw us forward? We look around at the church in North America and we ask Yes, there are pockets of good things. There are mega churches picking off post-Christians that still have some Christendom for sure and a few real conversions. But by and large, most churches in North America, I think it's something like 90%, are under 100 people. And 7,000 of them are slated to close probably in the next, I think it's five to 10 years as well. In the midst of all that, I hear God speaking through Jeremiah saying, I'm going to do a new thing. I'm going to write a new thing on their hearts. I hear him say that I will do great and mighty things which you do not know. And so we lean into hope. We manage our expectations upward. And we act accordingly because of what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, thank you for your presence in this house. Thank you for your goodness and your grace. Thank you that you spoke through the prophets and you still speak today by your spirit through your word and the church. And Lord, for the person that is dealing with a lack of hope, I pray that they would hear your word, that you care for them and you want to hear from them. And you are at work in the world and you're at work in the layers that we sometimes ignore. Open our eyes to see that. Awaken us to your promises. And thank you that you began to manifest them in Jesus. And you continue to do it in the church by your spirit until you come again. Stir us, oh God. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen.